Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And as you are looking there, if you are a note taker, Pastor Nick uh, put me on to these uh, journaling Bibles. They're just the actual book itself. So if you are a note taker and you're looking for something to take notes in so that you're not trying to jam everything between the lines of the Bible that you have, these are pretty good. This is the book of uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, there is Deuteronomy on one side and some room around there to uh, note, and then like you get this whole page to note take and stuff. And I found this to be very helpful in my preparations for the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, I know in our Wednesday Bible class, I've got some people that are using them now as we work through Genesis as well. So you can get them on uh, any of the popular sites where you shop online if you want. I'm not going to name them here. They don't deserve it, but you know. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're going to look today at verses 1 to 5, 1 to 5. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Hezbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edri. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. And so ends our reading of the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. So this morning we begin an as of yet undetermined number of messages that could span weeks, months, or years examining and seeking to learn, to be changed by, to apply the word of God that is revealed to us in the book of Deuteronomy. Now you might ask yourself, why Deuteronomy? Why choose to preach through a series of sermons from 3,500 years ago, a series of sermons delivered by Moses to a unique people living in a different time and in an ancient Near Eastern context? How do all the rules and the statutes and the laws of these ancient times Deuteronomy was written in 1406 B.C., approximately. The sermons contained here are from 1406 B.C. How do these sermons from ancient times speaking, speak to us who are sitting here this morning? What does this seemingly outdated and irrelevant book have to say to God's people today? Because, I mean, you have probably heard, as I have, people have referred to the 
different concepts in the Levitical law or the Deuteronomic law, like what, what does two shirts of shirts made of two different fabrics have to say to us? Or what does the year of Jubilee have to say to us? Or what, does the, what do the cities of refuge have to say to us? And much of what we are going to encounter as we work through Deuteronomy is going to seem alien and foreign to us as we look back at them and try to consider what that means for us sitting here in North America in the year 2023. There are many reasons to choose and to work through this book, and by way of introduction, before we actually get to the first five verses, um, let me introduce or answer or try to answer the question, why Deuteronomy? So I've got a number of reasons why. The first being that the New Testament itself relies heavily on this book. And in many ways, if you and I would seek to understand or would like to understand the New Testament in a greater, deeper way than you do right now, then understanding Deuteronomy will aid you in that endeavor. And that fact alone ought to eliminate any thoughts of us when we say things like, well, that's the Old Testament. I've heard people say things like that. That's the Old Testament, as if to say that it has lesser value and lesser authority to us today than the New Testament does. That is false. Deuteronomy is as inspired and as God-breathed as Matthew. So depending on who you ask, Deuteronomy is referenced or quoted upwards of 200 plus times in the New Testament. Jesus, for example, you remember it, when he was led into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, immediately before the commencement of his public ministry, he turned aside three attempts of the devil to derail him by doing what? By quoting Deuteronomy. When Satan said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. In essence, Satan was saying, provide for yourself, Jesus, because it doesn't look like your father is doing it. Jesus was hungry, remember? Forty days and forty nights, he hasn't eaten anything. Forty days, he's been fasting in the desert, and the devil comes to him when he's hungry and says, what kind of father would treat his son like this? What kind of father would leave his child to suffer and to starve in a wilderness like this? Do some self-care, Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. Listen, Jesus, what I really want what's best for you. And Jesus parried that effort of the enemy by quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then immediately after, Satan told Jesus, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Prove to everyone in Jerusalem that you are their king, that you are God's Messiah, because you know the scripture promises it. If you throw yourself down, you will not be hurt because God will hold you up. If you throw yourself down, the skies will crack open, the angels will fly down to rescue you, and everyone in Jerusalem at the temple will see who you really are. And they will establish you as king in Israel. You will receive the accolades of a king. Watch Israel, the people you love, flow to you in submission as they see this undeniable miracle. Jesus responds, answered this test with Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And finally, 
as the devil showed and offered to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in exchange for Jesus falling down and worshiping him, Jesus resisted the test. See, Satan offered to Jesus all the kingdoms that will eventually be given to Jesus anyway. He just wanted Jesus to do it or to lay hold of them without the suffering of the cross. Bypass the Father's will to crush you, Jesus. I'll give you the kingdoms now. Take them now. And all you need to do is transfer your allegiance to me. Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 6, 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and you, him alone, him only shall you serve. Now, it should speak volumes to us sitting here this morning that when Jesus was tested three times, he slapped every one of them down with the quotes from Deuteronomy. If it was good enough for Christ, not to be good enough for us. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus referred to the truths revealed in Deuteronomy numerous times. Another example is as the Sadducees were having a dispute with Jesus over a variety of issues, uh, Mark 12 tells us of a scribe that came to Jesus and asked him this question, which commandment is the most important of them all? And Jesus answered that question by reciting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Deuteronomy as a whole is basically an expansion on or an exposition of that idea. How to love the Lord with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But it wasn't just Jesus who loved and depended on and quoted Deuteronomy during his ministry, but the apostles also. They referenced and quoted Deuteronomy over and over again to promote and to buttress numerous truths about the character and the attributes of our God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We learn in Deuteronomy that the Lord's grace is his unmerited favor bestowed upon an undeserving people like Israel. Because God is gloriously merciful. As it's made clear in Deuteronomy 9, as the Lord said to the Israel, or as Moses said to the Israelites, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust the Canaanites out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Because it isn't. It's the mercy and the grace of God. The Lord will make it clear that he is faithful, that his love is steadfast, and that it endures forever. The Apostle Paul refers back to Deuteronomy a number of times as well in his letter to the Romans as he exhorted them and as he exhorted us to avoid avenging any wrongs that we feel have been committed against us. He said, as it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The New Testament also numerous times affirms that God shows no partiality. And where does that principle come from? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, where we read, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. The apostles refer back to this text at least five times. This text alone, five times in the New Testament. As Peter came to preach the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus to the Gentiles, he said this in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And four times in the Apostle Paul's letters, Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Colossians 3.25, and Ephesians 6.9, if you want those, you can ask me later. You can watch the, live, the, the, the stream at some point in the future. We read, God shows no partiality. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, powerful or weak, of high worldly standing or of low nothingness, None of these mean anything in terms of God's acceptance of or rejection of a man. And it's this to what Paul speaks in Galatians 3. When you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there is no partiality between any man or woman or, or Jew or Greek. We read it, right, in Galatians 3. In Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. If, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Meaning, all who believe are one in Christ and God shows no partiality. So when you look at somebody and you think, man, that person has it all together. God must love them way more than he loves me. Remember, God shows no partiality. He loves you too. The writer of Hebrews when speaking of God's perfect holiness, draws upon the words of Deuteronomy when he wrote in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. And twice in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, in sermons preached by Peter in Acts chapter 4 and Stephen in Acts chapter 7, both men rely on the prophetic words of Deuteronomy to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. As we read in Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses prophesied these words to Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. And both Peter and Stephen declare that this promise has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is only a small sampling of the New Testament dependence upon, the New De Testament references to and allusions to the book of Deuteronomy. And it's for this reason that I said earlier that if one would like to grow in their grasp of the New Testament, one of the most beneficial ways to accomplish that goal is becoming, by becoming very familiar with Deuteronomy. So that's the first reason why Deuteronomy. It is extremely valuable to Jesus, the apostles, and the New Testament as a whole. Another reason, on top of the New Testament's reliance upon this book, another reason for choosing Deuteronomy is that it, in a special and unique way, provides a much-needed rebuke and correction to the compromise many professing Christians have made with the world. This book clearly reprimands and chastises all of us who claim to be God's people for the degree of influence that we are content to let the unsaved, wicked, evil, ungodly world possess over and exert in the shaping of our minds and our hearts and our lives. 
You see, the Lord in this book of Deuteronomy will pronounce and warn over and over and over again of the necessity of coming out of the world, of those who represent him in the world taking great pains to be unlike the nations as we, with great care and scrupulous particularity, obey the will of God, come whatever may. Deuteronomy is relentless in its warnings about the dangers that we face in and from a world that is constantly, and you know this, I know this, hopefully you know this, constantly seeking to bewitch you and to seduce you and I into the service and love of its idols. Deuteronomy, God, in Deuteronomy, God calls each one of us, and he does it over and over again, to fix our hearts and our minds on an attentive, conscientious, vigilant obedience to the word of God, while at the same time making absolutely no room. Hear that again. No room. No accommodation to the evil of the world in our midst. God commands his people to be serious about this because the will and the word of God, as we will see, is our life. As Psalm 96 makes clear, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Worthless idols. But God made the heavens. So you'll see, Deuteronomy is persistent in its reminders and its exhortations and its instructions to you as God's people that living for Him in a world that hates Him is our pathway to life and blessing. While disobedience and rebellion paves the way to cursing and death. And so over and over again in Deuteronomy, you will see the command of God, listen to my laws and my rules and my statutes and take care. If you're reading Deuteronomy on your own, take a highlighter and mark down every time you see one of these phrases. Listen, take care, be diligent, beware, watch yourself, be diligent, be careful to obey. You will see it at least one to two to three times per chapter, starting from chapter four and on. The call is to keep watch over ourselves so that we are not taken in by or taken captive to the idolatries of the world. Another reason to preach through Deuteronomy is that while there are indeed many faithful, Christ-exalting churches that truly honor and love and serve Jesus rightly and appropriately, alongside of those many of those churches, there are many so-called churches that have created a climate of flippant, superficial, irreverent, so-called worship services populated by so-called worshipers. You and I know, and you've probably felt it, if you talk to someone about the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't just say to them, go to church. Because who knows what church they're going to go to? It takes diligent study and research to find the church that is committed to the Word of God. They are out there, and there are a number of them, because God is faithful and His church is being built, but you can't just send anyone to any church, right? This past Sunday, when we were in... 
uh, Delaware on vacation, we had to do a lot of research to find a faithful church, and we did find one. We settled on Calvary Baptist Church in Georgetown, Delaware, and it was wonderful. We were blessed to sit under the teaching of a faithful pastor teaching his people God's word. It was amazing. But to find that church was difficult because you have to wade through a number of churches who don't take the worship of God seriously. And as we work through Deuteronomy, we will see and will hopefully grow in our understanding of God's exacting demands and his exacting requirements for us, his people, as we worship his glorious and holy name. You see, God is the one who regulates and dictates what is expected and what is appropriate in our worship of himself. He is to be worshipped according to his word. And as much as churches around would like to think, think differently, we are not permitted, nor are we expected to add anything to the worship of God that he doesn't prescribe. We are not called to innovate we are not called to seek relevance or acceptance from the culture around us, nor are we to allow that culture to infringe upon or to press itself into our worship. We're not to allow our cultural calendar to dictate or promote its special holidays and observances into our worship services. No, we are to gather to worship him, and we worship him according to the commands that he gives us in his word. This is something I take very seriously. The theological term for this is called the regulative principle. Regulative principle. Meaning that when we gather for worship, our services of worship will only contain that which is set out in Scripture by God as acceptable in a worship service. And all other things are to be excluded and not permitted in our time of worship. And as we read through Deuteronomy, you will see that God makes this very clear. And so for the New Testament believer, as a church, uh, as we gather for church, as we gather for corporate worship, as we call you to worship, God has called us and prescribed for us things like psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God has called us to prayer and confession. God has called us to lay hands on and commission elders. He has called us to scripture reading, to prayer, to the Lord's Supper, to, the, to baptisms and the preaching of God's word. Those are the things that we are permitted in our services of worship. Deuteronomy will make it clear to each and every one of us that adding to or subtracting from God's word in any way, especially in the service of worship, is a terrible evil and we must be on guard against it. And therefore, the necessity of worshiping him in the way that he prescribes is for us, his people, a very serious business. We worship him in the way that he prescribes. We don't worship him in order to tickle our own fancies and our desires. We don't listen to or lend an ear to those who would call for their preferences to be met or the addition of worldly observances to be recognized in the service if those things are not explicitly set down in God's word. Deuteronomy will reveal to us just how precise and exacting our God is with regard to corporate worship and will help our view of the gravity and the wonder and the amazing privilege that we have to gather to worship grow and expand 
And in this day when many think it's permissible and even spiritual to worship God as they see fit, according to our wants rather than what God commands in his word, Deuteronomy will provide a much-needed corrective. Because in our day it would seem that the, the primary goal of worship is to have some emotional experience for yourself than it is to exalt our good and righteous God. And that, my friends, is a direct contradiction to the Scripture's prescription for worship. In both the Old and the New Testaments, you know this, God is quite strict. He is quite specific and detailed about what is acceptable in worship. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, God is specific and clear about what dates you gather on, what times, what seasons, what place you gather in. For example, over and over again, Deuteronomy will use this phrase in reference to the location of Israel's worship. It will be at the place that the Lord your God will choose. See, at this time, Jerusalem hadn't been settled as the capital yet, and the temple hadn't been built. But you see that whether it's a sacrifice or a festival or an offering of worship, worship is to be done at the place the Lord your God will choose. That place will be revealed, again, as the tabernacle or temple in Jerusalem. And in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, God is the one who determines everything in the service of worship, from the shape and the size of the materials used in the utensils in the tabernacle to the organization and the placement of the furniture in the tabernacle, to the recipe, the exact recipe to be used for the incense in the service of worship. In each case, God is detailed and God is orderly and he does not give his people permission to or the option to alter or change anything. So we will grow in our understanding as we study Deuteronomy in the seriousness and the gravity and the precision of worship. Another reason for the selection of Deuteronomy is the clear and clarion call of this book for his people to be separate and distinct from the world around us. The principle is still made clear in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul sums up a principle, this principle set out for us in Deuteronomy in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says this, when he wrote this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now the implied answer to each of these questions is nothing. There is no agreement. Paul continues, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, as God's people, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be the sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. That's Deuteronomy right there. The imperative is clear, isn't it? The expectation of God is not ambiguous here, is it? It's not confusing, right? We are to be totally and completely distinct from the world because God has separated us to himself and for himself. This is a foundational message 
throughout Deuteronomy. God warned Israel and called on Israel and us over and over again to be salt, to be light, to be distinct, to be different, to be holy, to ruthlessly avoid the adoption of the world's practices and beliefs. God's children are called to provide in, to, and for the world a radical alternative to the path of death that the world is relentlessly walking upon. And this warning will be repeated throughout Deuteronomy and on into the rest of Scripture because as it was then, so it is throughout all the ages and generations. The world and its temptations, the world and its pleasures, the world and its obsession with and preoccupation with the idolatry of self is a truly seductive temptation. And all of us are fighting it. And it never stops wooing and sweet-talking and calling us into its destructive, fatal, and deadly arms. Deuteronomy reminds us that you and I, the children of the Lord Jesus Christ, must not give an inch to the world. We must be the ones who hold the line of holiness without apology, without compromise. And even more, we don't just hold the line, but we step forward and we advance into the world calling sinners out of darkness and into the marvelous light of salvation in Jesus Christ. We advance with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. We advance and tell those who are blinded by Satan and on the verge of being paid the wages of sin, which is eternal death, about the offer of Christ to them. And while the world might try to convince you and I that that's not nice, that's not kind, it's not right or Christianly for one of you to be so exclusive or to be so distinct or to be so committed to holiness, to be so exacting and precise about the revelation of God in His Word, to go and call people to repentance and faith and, and hurt their feelings. It's not Christian or nice to be firm and resolute and unshakable and immovable in our devotion and obedience to God. The truth is, as Deuteronomy makes clear, is that the Lord is God and there is no other besides Him. And Deuteronomy 32 says, the gods of the nations, the ones that, that the, the, the gods from whom we are calling people into the truth, those gods are, Deuteronomy 32, 7, demons that are no gods. And that allegiance to false gods and false idols, it actually, as Deuteronomy 32, 21 says, provokes God to anger. And we are the ones who love the world so much that we do not want to see the anger of God provoked by them and to fall upon them, which is why we advance into the world and we just leave off. Whenever they say, that's not nice, you say, I don't care. Jesus must be preached. He must be exalted. You are held in the sway of eternal death. And one day, you won't be saying, hey, hey, you were not nice.